0: The Liverpool bomber is now reported to be somebody who illegally entered the country and yet was allowed to stay. We'll ask, has the government failed? And this on the very day when huge numbers of undocumented young males have arrived on the Kent Coast. We'll talk to the former Australian High Commissioner Alexander Downer to find out how they dealt with the problem. And joining me on Talking Pines, the star of Britain Has Got Talent, magician, illusionist, no doubt he'll try, and tie me in knots, Jamie Raven. In the last 24 hours, various news reports have told us a lot more about the Liverpool bomber than we knew before. He was 32 years old. Emad al-Sweilman, asylum seeker, and just a lovely boy, a happy, smiling, young face. Oh, he specialised in making pizzas. Oh, I nearly forgot. I listened to the news this morning. He'd also converted to Christianity. Well, that was how it was all being portrayed this morning. I could scarcely believe it. So let's perhaps... Deal with some real facts. The first is there are many people who illegally enter this country who go to churches to try to say they've converted to Christianity because they believe that increases their chances of being granted refugee status. We are dealing here with a man who was an illegal immigrant into this country. He came here seven years ago, he went through the process, and he was refused. Yet, Of course, he was not deported. So he's been living for the last seven years at the taxpayer's expense. Despite the fact that he was here illegally, despite the fact he'd been... He'd actually, you know, been refused asylum, he was later arrested carrying a knife, and yet still he was allowed to continue to live here. I find it astonishing when the Prime Minister stands up last night and says, ''We must remain vigilant.'' Well, we haven't been very vigilant with this man, have we? And I say this on a day when the already 20,000 undocumented young males that have crossed the English Channel so far this year, their numbers have been added to significantly today, and I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. You see, it seems to me that the primary duty of government is to protect the integrity of the country and the safety of its citizens. That is what they are there to do. And frankly, we're now in a position where there are just too many people living in this country that hate us and everything we've ever stood for. I'm asking you the question, I've answered it already, I think, myself, has the government failed us? Please let me know what you think. Am I being fair? Am I being unfair? GBviews at gbnews.uk or tweet at GB News. Well, Joining me now is our home and security editor, Mark White. Mark, Hotfoot back from Liverpool. Um, this man had come here illegally, he'd gone through the process, he'd been refused, and yet he was allowed to stay. And this is not the first time that we've seen people with failed asylum applications go on to commit horrible crimes. Is there any real pressure on the government to do anything about this, or is it one of those subjects that everybody just, w- just wants to brush under the carpet and pretend it's not really happening?
1: There is definitely pressure on the government, and the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, knows that. She is determined, she has said, to try to end this process of appeal and reappeal where someone can stay, not just for months, but for years Mm. after their initial asylum bid has been turned down. That's why in the Immigrations and Borders Bill that's going through Parliament, there is uh, provisions in there to try to make this a speedier process. She knows it's not, of course, acceptable that someone can be granted uh, or denied asylum and then still years later is still here, Nigel.
0: No, and and It's also very difficult to establish any form of debate that says, as I've been saying, if huge numbers of undocumented young males come into this country, that that potentially could be a security risk. You get howled down, shouted down for daring to even suggest that. And yet, I think the evidence is there before us, isn't it? It's an issue. It
1: is. Because the... Police and security services have said as much themselves. They're very concerned about the fact that coming across the channel, be it on the back of small boats or in the back of lorries, are undocumented people who then go on to claim asylum. Now, that's different from people that maybe previously had got on a plane, come here, they'd have their documents with them in order to get a visa to get to the country to then claim asylum. They are told by the people smugglers, throw your documents away, throw your passports, your bank cards, anything like that, that could identify you, and that will make the process of trying to return you to your country of origin much more difficult and, therefore... It is likely, they are told in the fullness of time, you, if not granted asylum, will be granted leave to remain. And that has been happening in a very significant number of cases. But it throws up some very real security concerns, Nigel, because the authorities then find it very difficult to delve deep into the background of these people who are coming across to find out if there is any potential security threat. They don't have any documents... If they're not on a database, an yeah. international database... How you check who they, they are? can't find them, no, because they're coming often from countries, war-torn countries, with, at best, very dysfunctional governments who probably don't want them back in a lot of instances and have very little detail, of any, on what these people might have been up to in their own countries.
0: And this problem getting worse, potentially, with what's happening in Belarus, what's happening up in Lithuania, or anyone that borders Belarus seeing large numbers of people coming in, and I've heard one or two reports, interviews there, where people who have come through or coming through those borders or trying to come through those borders, when they're asked where do they want to go, they're not saying Germany, they're saying the United Kingdom Um, and the people smugglers, uh, the gangs in Calais, Boulogne, along that coast, I mean, having just the most incredible uh, financial windfall. Um, Do we see... different kinds of people coming in through Lithuania and through through Poland or is it much the same as what's been happening already?
1: I think the situation at the moment uh, on the border between Belarus and Poland and Lithuania and Latvia is very pertinent to the concerns that we have here in the United Kingdom about the situation in the channel with undocumented people coming across because the Lithuanians for months now have had about 4,000 people pushed across their borders by the Belarusian authorities and then have gone on to claim asylum. They've been able to do checks, provisional checks, on a significant number of them. Very difficult and complex, though that is, because of all the issues uh, around yeah. their documentation they have been able to establish that more than 2 dozen of them were or, associated with or members of prescribed groups terrorist organizations mainly out of Syria ISIS and other groups that were I've fighting not seen that reported anywhere it, yeah. I mean, it hasn't been widely reported. That is, that is true. Two but two dozen. That's what the Lithuanian government have said about the, the security threat that they're facing and why they are so concerned about the fact that these people coming across the borders, uh, many of them are undocumented. Some might have documents. They've been able to do checks uh, that has highlighted initially those two dozen people. And it's also pertinent, I think, in terms of uh, the asylum seeker issue as well, Nigel, if we think back, not just this attack that's happened in Liverpool uh, involving an asylum seeker, but everybody remembers the Parson Green attack in 2017, when a device, the same make of this, the same TATP uh, primer, didn't fully detonate, thankfully, but still injured 30 people on that district-line train at Parsons Green. That young man who carried out that attack was a failed Iraqi asylum seeker, still in the country, having been turned down, trying and retrying to stay in the country. Then, of course, last uh, June, in, uh, or June of 2020, yeah. I should say, in Reading, that terrible knife attack on people that were mm. out celebrating the first lockdown partial lifting... Uh, when they were uh, stabbed by, again, another Islamist extremist, Kairi Saldala, he was also a failed asylum seeker who'd been granted leave to remain, despite being turned down for asylum a number of years ago.
0: Mark White, thank you. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, at some point, perhaps mainstream media and our political class might wake up to the threats and the risk of all of that. Well, joining me now uh, is somebody who's the Migrant Rights Programme Director at Amnesty UK, Steve Valdez-Simmons. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Now, I know that we've discussed this before, and and I know your view on the numbers that should be allowed and should be granted refugee status in this country may be different to mine. But numbers apart, do you understand why there is growing concern about the security threat posed to this country by a very, very large number of undocumented young males coming across the English Channel.
2: I understand why people are concerned that the asylum system um, is on its face, a somewhat chaotic um, experience, that large numbers of people, as you put it, um, enter that system by unregulated and often extremely dangerous to them as well as potentially to other people journeys. And that is not well managed. And the facilities that um, are then available in terms of people entering into uh, those, those systems are not well themselves managed. And we have growing delays and backlogs and problems with that system. Do I think that a very large number of people, as you put it, amongst that group pose a security threat? I
0: didn't say I no, no, see no, no, no evidence no, 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 for no, Steve, that at all. Steve, Steve, hang on, hang on. You and I may well agree that the whole thing's broken. It doesn't work in any way at all. It leads to endless delays, um, an, an appeals process that never seems to end. You and I would agree on the fact the system doesn't work. I didn't say a large number of those that come in pose a security threat. It doesn't need to be a large number, does it? Even if 1% or 2% of those that come in have Islamist intent, we are building up a very big problem for our future. That's the point I was making.
2: Well, I'm glad that's clarified. Uh, I may have misheard you, but I thought you said that the did I understand that people were worried that a large number of people posed a security threat through well, the asylum I what,
0: system? Do I want to be clear that I, do I don't accept, share that fear. Steve, do you accept... I'm going to ask you a question again. Do you accept that a large number of undocumented males coming into the United Kingdom, predominantly from, from the Middle East, poses a security threat to this country?
2: I don't agree that a large number of people entering this country poses a security threat.
0: No. Right. So what if 1% of those that come pose a security threat to this country? Isn't that a problem we should be open and honest about? And if people who come into this country and don't qualify as refugees, having gone through the process, should they not then be deported?
2: I, I see no evidence that even 0.001% of people who enter pose a security threat. Okay. Um, well, then, I've listened. Right, I mean, I mean, you, okay, you, with your fine. correspondent, quite reasonably recounted some very serious incidents yeah. that have happened over the last few years. And of course, people are rightly concerned about things like that. And people have lost their lives because of it. And people have been very hurt because of it. And that's very concerning. Of course it is. Does that represent a significant proportion of the people that you're discussing. No-one's arguing that. One, you're twi- no, 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 I'm point sorry, one, Steve. No, I'm sorry, no Steve. it doesn't.
0: You are twisting the words. You are twisting the words here. Let me ask you another question. Do you think that 32-year-old Imad al-Sweilman, do you think he should have been in this country?
2: Um, well, I hope you'll understand that I don't know enough about his circumstances to be able to fully answer that. Okay. Right. So I, I'm not familiar with his case. I have seen the news reports. Um, I know that he has been here on as reported since 2014. Mm-hmm. I understand that he had been refused asylum and that he'd been living in the country for some significant time beyond that. Yeah. I am well aware that there are many people who are living in the country having been refused asylum, often in circumstances where it is perfectly clear that there is no possibility of safely removing them anywhere and yet leaving them in destitution is often what happens and that certainly doesn't do any good for them
0: or indeed for the communities in which they live. Are there any circumstances, Steve, are there any circumstances in which Amnesty UK would approve of the deportation of people who have illegally entered the United Kingdom.
2: Well, you've asked me this question before. I know, but well, I didn't uh, get a proper on the answer. Programme. No, no, you, no, you've asked me this question before on this programme. Yeah. And the last time that I spoke to you about it, as I said, amnesty is not opposed to the use of removal or deportation powers. There are people who do not have good claims to stay in this country, who are not refugees, and where it is perfectly reasonable, proper and safe to return them the countries where they come from. We're not opposed to that. What we are opposed to is an arbitrary system that attempts to remove or deport many people whom it's either not safe or practical. And in some instances, not even properly lawful to attempt
0: well, to do so. I, I tell you what, I mean, you know, we haven't got today's figures yet. I, I'll, I'll speculate in a minute on those, but, but we'll be getting on for 25,000 people this year that we know about that have come across the English Channel and not a single one of them, not a single one of them, has been deported. And this issue is rapidly rising to the top of the political agenda. Steve, Baldess-Simmons from Amnesty UK, as ever, thank you for coming on the show and having a debate with me about this. Well, we always want to make sure that you at home see both sides of an argument, which seems fair and reasonable to me. Now, overnight, I turned to my Daily Mail to see this headline glare out at me from the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Yes, here we are. we will stop 100% of... Channel Crossings. Well, I'm sure there were lots of people travelling to work who read that and thought, isn't it absolutely marvellous that the Home Secretary has got a total grip on all of this? I don't know whether she's considering a career in stand-up comedy because she's been telling us things like this since August 2019. Well, I can tell you that today has been extremely busy in the English Channel, uh, the first call-outs from about 4am this morning. And let's have a look at some of the pictures of what has been going on in Kent today. There's a lifeboat coming in, landing in the shallows. Uh, that's the Dungeness lifeboat. Behind it, you'll see one dinghy undertow. There's another one behind that. And literally, there's barely a square foot of spare space on that lifeboat. There was a point. uh, Here we are. Here is an illegal beach landing. Here are 40 people, all men of course, it's nearly always all men, landing on the beach at Kingsdown and they just disappear. One or two got rounded up and the rest ran off into the Kent countryside. It's understood when they were asked where they were going. Some said Birmingham and some said London. I have absolutely no idea as I speak to you, whether they were caught or whether they weren't. What I do know is that the numbers you see and the numbers that are published, being processed through Dover, is not the full story. There are people who come, uh, are often in dead of night, who are off into vans and disappear into the criminal community in this country. There was a point tonight, even after dark, when every lifeboat was out, Ramsgate was out, Woolmer was out, Dover was out, Dungeness was out, even Hastings from East Sussex was out. They were all out. And yet most of the Border Force vessels, oh, they were in the port in Dover because they're short of staff and they're out of hours. So it's the volunteer crews once again being asked to do all the work. uh, And this is putting terrible strain on the RNLI. Goodness knows whether it can actually continue to survive in its current form. It's always dangerous to make predictions, but I've been busy doing it all year. I said back in the spring, 20,000 would come this year. Well, we're nearly 25 already. I said a month or two ago, it'd be 30,000. Depends on the weather between now and the new year. Today's number, I can't be certain, but but without doubt, it'll be more than 1,000. Without doubt, more than 1,000. And probably, it'll break the record of last Thursday of 11.85. And I've raised already the point that an increasing number of people agree with me that this does pose a serious security threat, let alone what it costs us, a security threat to this country. Well, joining me to discuss all of this is former Minister for Foreign Affairs from Australia, former High Commissioner from Australia to the United Kingdom, Alexander Downer. Alexander, welcome. Thank you. To GB News. Good to see you here. Uh, And, I mean, can you believe what's going on? We voted Brexit to take back control of our borders, amongst other things. It's extraordinary. Well, it looks a bit familiar to me from um, the
3: 1990s and the 2000s because in Australia we had, um, not in the same volumes, but exactly the same problems. So basically in our case, so um, I, I, it looks very familiar, but in our case there was a racket run by a, um, a lot of people smugglers. They were making huge amounts of money. Uh, bringing people, in their case from ind- in our case, from Indonesia across to Australia, exactly the same sort of system. And, of course, we were receiving them all and processing their claims. Their documents were all thrown into the sea. The people smugglers prepped them all so they always gave the same answers to our immigration officers' questions. Um, and we did a bit of spying on these people smugglers, to be frank, and um, we found out how the racket worked. And we came to the conclusion that, um, you know, in, in the teeth of a lot of opposition from people like Amnesty International, mm-hmm. um, we came to the conclusion that our whole immigration system was going to collapse if we allowed people to pay people smugglers and come into Australia. Because traditionally getting into Australia was quite difficult. Yeah, well, it, that's right. I mean, we have... You, I mean, a lot of people no, I admire, migrate to Australia. But I
0: admire the fact that you want people... You know, of a certain age, not too old. You want people to bring in a skill or a trade that so you can use. We don't
3: want to bring them in and have them just lie around. And we don't want to bring people in who are
0: going to be a
3: burden on the welfare system. The, yeah. So we bring migrants in who are going to be able to work. And, and they
0: pay for their own health care for the first several years. Yes,
3: exactly. Yeah. 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 So we didn't want our immigration system to be broken down by people smugglers. So how do you stop it? We tried all sorts of methods. We worked with the Indonesians. The Indonesians weren't very efficient at... Stop... I'm a little familiar, this. I can going to say, is that like the French <laughs> at the moment? <laughs> no, no, not wishing to make any comparisons here. That's not my job. <laughs> um, the Indonesians weren't very efficient at stopping these boats and I, I think with the best will in the world, they just didn't succeed in doing it. So eventually we did the most controversial thing of all and that is we turned back the boats... We said no-one, no-one who comes to Australia by this method will be allowed to stay. No-one, under no circumstances. We won't... If they claim to be refugees from Iran, we won't send them back to Iran. But hang on, by the way, they weren't coming from Iran. They were coming from Indonesia. They weren't being persecuted Mm. in Indonesia. Mm. Just as these people here, the one comment I will make about the UK is they're coming from France. Mm -hmm. They're not being persecuted in France.
0: They're just making a trip across here because they'd rather work here, um, I assume. Well, yes, and also the French don't give them four-star hotels. The French don't give them new mobile phones. The French don't give them free health care, free dental care, three square meals a day and £38 a week spending money. I mean, you can see why the pull factors are stronger here than France. And
3: we had all of that. We had all of that. So, look, in the end... um, so, so we took this look this is a really simple way of looking at it we took this view if you want all these people to come to australia why allow them to come on dangerous little boats like this and risk their lives why don't we just send some ferries to bring them but if you don't want them to come let's say they can't come mm-hmm. and so in the end we did turn back some boats but you don't have to turn back many boats because once we yeah. made it clear yeah. to the people smugglers and their customers that they, this would not succeed, then the whole process stopped. And, you know, there's a headline I hadn't seen today where Pretty Patel is saying she will stop 100% of this. We did stop 100%.
0: Yeah, of and this. you did. And, and how were you treated by the international community, the United Much Nations? Much
3: condemnation. Uh, the
0: European Union, uh, Amnesty International.
3: Oh, sure. They all ah. condemned us. I mean, look, the thing about government is you must try to do what you think is the right thing. Um, and we were condemned by UN committees and so on. But I used to say to them, so what's your point? We shouldn't have an immigration system with integrity. We should take anybody who wants to come to Australia. Is that your point? They say, oh, no, we're not really saying that. Well, what are you saying then? How... I mean, under any circumstances, should we stop people coming illegally to our country? Um, So... um, you know, I mean, we didn't have to get permission from the United Nations or anyone like that. But, yes, you're right, we got condemned a lot. You, you were
0: sort of briefly a pariah. The European
3: Union, they uh, condemned us a bit Oh, that,
0: well, they condemned. I know you remember well, you're can, a member of the European Parliament. Well, they condemned. Well, I was. I'm not anymore, thank goodness, of than <laughs> Brexit. But but how long did that pariah status last?
3: Well, I don't think we were a pariah with the public and with um, no. but in, um, but in the mainstream in, communities. In, a sort of bourgeois elites condemned us a bit. I wouldn't say we were a pariah, but we were often condemned. I remember uh, going to see the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Mary Robinson it was yeah. at the time, and she gave me, you know, she set up all the media, so the, my visit to see her was um, got maximum publicity so she could do maximum <laughs> condemnation. But, you know, I mean, if you you know this as well as I do. If you go into public life, you spend a lot of time being condemned. Yeah. But I slept that night okay, because it was the right policy and and it succeeded. We stopped people coming that way. A subsequent Australian government opened it up again. Uh, The public in Australia were were pretty angry about that. People died making these journeys. Mm -hmm. So they closed it down once more and that's as it is now.
0: Looking at your situation and what you did and how you acted, could we do the same here? Could we stop this happening here so the
3: The one difference is the the legal system may be different, but i 've never examined it but uh, uh, first of all there 's the issue of British law um, and how that 's framed then Britain is subject to the European Um, Court of Human Rights. and Yes, uh,
0: it's unfinished unfinished business for me. But yes, I think you're right. I think all the while we're subject to the European Court of Human Rights. I still think this is possible, but it's a lot more difficult. So there are issues about maritime
3: law. It's 21 miles, I think, at Mm -hmm. the closest point between France and England. Um, That's less than 24 miles, and you have 12 miles of territorial sea, so there's no international waterway. In that 21-mile street. Yeah, strip. it's a strange
0: setup, but yeah. So
3: yeah. there are all sorts of legal yeah. issues like that which I've not examined. Yeah,
0: I mean, look, I think the truth of it is uh, any solution that, that, that can be found, and you're right, if the boats are turned back and nobody is granted uh, leave to remain, then the customers stop paying the traffickers and then the problem ends. Sure. Uh, I don't think there's any solution open to us that won't lead to international condemnation, but Alexander Downer, it's good to have someone sitting here who did receive international condemnation, but they made it actually work, and that's the important thing. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. For joining us here on GB News, and actually, in many ways, quite an inspiring story, I think. In a moment, Keir Starmer, back from Covid, goes on the attack and says that MPs should not be allowed to have second jobs and consultancies, apart from exceptional circumstances. And you'll never guess what Boris Johnson's done today. No, you'll never guess... Another huge, dramatic U-turn. Has our government failed us? Has it failed in its primary duty, which is to keep the integrity of the country and its citizens safe? That's the question I asked you at the top of the hour. And I sense there is a slight change of mood About this over the course of the last couple of weeks. Angela says, I am absolutely disgusted with this government's lack of action. Just loads of excuses and promises, but nothing ever changes. Christopher says, why is Patel getting paid to control the borders and not doing the job? Patricia says, the government has done nothing to sort this situation. Susan says, they failed massively. Gillian says, hi, Nigel, the government is failing to protect our borders. It is absolutely terrifying. I'm fearful for my grandchildren's future. Nicole says every single illegal asylum seeker should be held in a secure processing centre until the decision failed Ones should be held until they are deported. Well, you know what? This is... It was amazing last Thursday, uh, doing Farage at large, out on the road in Sunderland, and this Thursday, by the way, I'll be down in Devon in Brixham. But it was interesting. There we were a long way away from Dover, a long way away from the shingle beaches of Kent, and yet it was the number one issue that people were talking about. Why? Well, because the Northeast has been asked to house 17 times the number of those who cross the Channel than the South East. So they're seeing it in their streets, they're seeing it in their communities, and they're asking why they're being forced to pay for it. Now, Labour... Really interesting. Labour have been pushing hard for the last 48 hours, putting a resolution forward tomorrow, um, talking about banning MPs from having paid second jobs. And Keir Starmer gave a speech about this today. Um, And then, would you believe it, Boris Johnson, the man who two weeks ago was not just defending Owen Paterson, but three-line whipping his own party, has, um, how can I put it... um, to our um, <laughs> political Westminster expert, Darren McCaffrey, another gigantic U-turn.
4: Uh, a screeching U-turn, and my word, consider MPs are flipping furious tonight. I mean, they really, really are. I mean, many of them marched into that lobby two weeks ago not wanting to do it, and the... <laughs> so he's annoyed that wing of the party who thought Owen Paterson essentially he yeah. was guilty and needed to meet his punishment, and the other people who were defending him, Boris Johnson's managed to annoy them because... Potentially, if this goes through and all certainly will with what Boris Johnson wants to see, it means that many Conservative MPs, dozens of them, are going to be significantly financially worse off. Uh, So really interesting politics today. Keir Starmer making a big speech, calling for MP second jobs to be banned. There's an opposition day debate in the Commons on this tomorrow. It's going to put the Conservatives in a very difficult position. Mm. He was up for two minutes... And then suddenly the Prime Minister issues a statement, Nigel, in which he says, well, hold on a second, actually I've just written, coincidentally, uh, to the Speaker of the House and I've said that actually I want to ban MPs doing consultancy and lobbying work and also... Not
0: journalism, I noted. Not, not, not <laughs> journalism.
4: Uh, of course, the former Telegraph uh, columnist that Boris Johnson is... And also to ensure that MPs essentially spend most of the time being an MP rather than doing lucrative other jobs, which seems very squarely aimed at Geoffrey Cox, the former Attorney General, who, of course, has earned nearly a million quits.
0: So, is it fair to say, and I know Starmer's been ill, and he looked rather tired, I thought, today, seeing him. I mean, you know, I've not had Covid, but clearly it, it knocks it out of you. But actually, quite good politics from Labour.
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, they can genuinely claim a victory on this. It is clear that Labour pressure has forced the government, though, as we've been talking about you know, the government had to get ahead of this at some stage. Yes. So there's no possibility they could have just carried on doing things. Now, the debate is not over yet because, you know, what are the defined terms of what a consultant and lobbyist is? That's going to be quite difficult. And also Labour are clearly pushing for a ban for all second jobs, apart from limited circumstances, for example, if you're a doctor or a nurse or yeah. a teacher or whatever. Um, so Labour will still hammer this tomorrow, but in the end politically, yes, damaging with the public, because I think some people are very annoyed about this, but more than that, his party management has completely fallen apart on this. I agree. He is annoyed. Two wings of his party. He didn't need to. It's it's a a remarkable... It's a remarkable
0: achievement, to upset both wings of your own parliamentary party. It's a remarkable... Darren McCaffrey, thank you. Carry on, U-turn. No doubt, Darren, will be back with the next one. My What the Farage moment today. Well, now, Royal Dutch Shell... They've been around for a very, very long time. They've been around for a few centuries, actually. And during the referendum and after the referendum, we were told that firms like Royal Dutch Shell, well, they would headquarter, of course, in the Netherlands. Uh, We'd lose them all because of Brexit. Well, they've decided they're going to get rid of Royal Dutch. They're just going to be called Shell and they're moving all their operations to London. It's a big victory for Brexit Britain so let's at least say there's a bit of good news today now in a moment it's talking pints with magician and illusionist Jamie Raven let's see if I get turned over The GB News pub is open and joining me on Talking Pints, magician, illusionist and former star of Britain's Got Talent, Jamie Raven. Jamie, welcome to Talking Pints. Very good to see you. The phenomenon, the phenomenon of the TV talent show. And I can think back to being a kid. It was Huey Green, Opportunity Knox, and there were lots of other variants on that. And, you know, over the years... Quite a lot of people, you know, singers, uh, comedians, Jim Davidson, Davidson, I I think Rod Stewart and others came through and did... I mean, lots of people came through these shows and they were the making of them. Yeah. Looking at your career, Jamie, I mean, you were, you know, a magician and you were working and you were out... Because, I mean, people love magicians. Yeah. You know, it's the... I don't know. The firm's Christmas lunch, or or whatever it is.
5: I think I think with magic in particular as well, it's it's the sort of thing that when you see it performed live, it's it's there's there's nothing to compare it to. It's magic, so, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So when you watch when you watch magic performed on television, and you know, not saying it never happens, but there's very rarely like a cheating and editing go on that people think because obviously when you see something that fools you, you're instinct is to come up with an explanation for it um but just by the very nature that something has been on television people might say oh well it's yeah. a camera trick or they're in on it but when you're performing live, you're on, live on a stage in front of you know three thousand people and someone is chosen at random and they're brought up on and then the magic happens on them there's you know it's quite profound sometimes because it's something they, they may have never seen before they've been
0: i mean you've been doing this anyway and you've been working hard yeah and going out and doing it yeah how did you get on to Britain's Got Talent?
5: Yes, yeah, so I I'd been performing professionally for 13 years before I went on Britain's Got Talent. And the season I did was Series 9. And as all production shows happen, you know, Series 1 happened and, and they, they go out and they look for people. You have people who apply and audition, um, but they also go out and they ask people, would you be interested? They can't promise you anything, but you know, if you are a magician yeah. or a comedian or someone who's yeah. been working professionally, would you like to come on and do the show? And year number one, I said, um, thank you very much, but no thank you. Uh, I'd just like to see what it is. I didn't know what it was. I watched it. um, And I just, I didn't think that magic at that time was being particularly well received. Um, Wind the clock forward nine years and an American magician called Matt Franco won America's Got Talent. And I was starting to work with some other people at the time and just thought, well, if now's, now's the time... And a friend of mine, Darcy, had come, he'd reached the finals the year before that. And before that, another colleague had reached the semi final. So it, just, it was sort of moving in the right direction. I thought i will give it a go. Came second.
0: So you were a star?
5: That was it. And it was, um, yeah. You were a star. You were made. It changed my life. I'd, be, I'd been working professionally, as I said, for 13 years before. And then that show, the final, aired in the May. And in the November, I headlined a show called The Illusionist at the Shaftesbury Theatre. And that broke the box office record um, at the Shaftesbury Theatre. So, Which yeah, must have been a great feeling. It was incredible. As, as a performer, all you ever dream of is performing live on stage. Yeah. Uh, to perform in a theatre in the West End at Christmas time, and break a record, any record, is amazing. And if you do ever go for a pint at the Sharsby Theatre in the interval, stand at the, the tap in the middle of the bar and turn around and my ugly mug will be looking down. <laughs> <and> re-
0: <laughs>
5: How stressful was Britain's Got Talent? Um, it was stressful in the sense that you, you know that you have an opportunity to change your life. So mm. in, in terms mm. of me performing and doing what I was doing, you know, I, I rehearsed, you know... For till the nth degree, so I was never, you know, stressed about myself. You, know, it's, you just worry about how people are going to receive you, and you know, you, you try your best, and you're going out then But you know, it's potentially life changing. Uh, well, a million percent, isn't it? So when yeah. you when when I auditioned for for the show, I'll, I'll I'll never experience that jump in emotion ever again. So before I did my first audition, I was just just a guy who did magic tricks, and I was doing it for a living, and it was brilliant. And, I had this opportunity, and I knew that if those six minutes went well, my life would never be the same again. And six minutes later, I stood there, I had a standing ovation, and Simon Cowell said, like some people believe in ghosts, I now believe in magic. And Simon I thought, Cowell, who could, was be, it. who could be pretty acerbic at times. Uh, exactly.
0: So, so, so you'd won Simon Cowell over.
5: That was it. And then that was we got through to the, the semi-final and then yeah. the final, and came runner-up in the show, which was amazing, and then that opened the door to perform in the West End, and then from there I did... I've done five of my own tours. We've been to, I think, 24 different countries now. Had a range of magic sets. They came out there in Harrods and St. That was <laughs> phenomenal walk. Remember... So, so you've made a few quid. I've, I've done
0: all right. I've done all you're right. He's done all right. Yeah. The, done all the, right. The, the,
5: the best thing, the, one of the best things happened, I went into Harrods um, with a friend of mine to get a picture taken of the magic sets. So I thought, I'd just like a picture of my magic sets in Harrods. I thought it'd be quite surreal. So I walked up into the toy department and I was looking around and I, I just found one of the, the, the staff who was working there and I said, Oh, excuse me. And they said, I think I know what you're looking for. And then he took me to them, and I was there, you know... As a <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was just, it was just so surreal, you know, to think happen. it happened. thing is, to... Jamie,
0: you know, whether you're a magician, yep. illusionist, whether you're a public speaker, as yeah. I am, and I've done, you know, quite a lot of theatre, and even with Nigel Farage-type things around the country, whether you're a comedian, all of us that are performers love a live audience. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing, you know... And there's always, before you go on stage, there's that little bit of buzz, isn't there? Yeah, it. And it's that. Is it nerves... Well, it's wanting to do well. Isn't I, I it? think. I think there's a big difference between nerves and excitement. I think you're nervous yeah. for
5: something if you're scared because yeah. you are maybe unprepared or you don't know what you're doing. I think yeah. you are excited if you know
0: exactly what you're doing yeah. and you want it to
5: be the best that it can be.
0: But and it they is, feel the same. But so there is, yeah, yeah, there is that feeling. Yeah. And then lockdown happens. Yes. And lots of friends of mine who are performers. I mean, it's driven them halfway round the twist. Yeah. They've been at home. They've hated it. They, yeah. Some of them have been performing in front of live audiences for decades. Um, and they 'd been very, very depressed about it, yeah, how did you, Kate were locked down with your? Career? It
5: was yeah, so in terms of live performing shows in front of a physical audience, yeah. obviously that was that was taken away
0: i 'm um, a i 'm a
5: glasses half full kind of guy and when you you're certainly given, are at the moment. Yeah, well, don't just give me. I talk too much. I like the sound of my own voice. Um, right. I love. I love uh, the idea that when you're given time, and we had a lot of time, you can learn new skills and new ways of doing mm. things, and things you're given the opportunity to evolve. So, in terms of like virtual shows or like Zoom calls, for example, I don't know how many people. And Certainly me. I don't know how many people have ever done a Zoom call before oh. before the lockdown. came. I mean, nobody ever heard of it, really. That had it? They? And, yeah. it's, and, and that that also afforded magicians and entertainers. And so, you know, we do a corporate event and it will be on Zoom and people get dressed up and they'd be in their kitchens, wearing their, their dinner suits and whatever. I could still perform, so we turned... But comedians uh, found that hard. Yes, um, I think... Very hard. I think... Uh, so a comedian friend of mine said, when, when he's performing, he tells a joke and he doesn't say... When he makes a joke, says the punchline, doesn't say another word until the last person in the room has stopped laughing. Because people understand things at different rates. The same thing for magic. If you do a trick and people react, yeah. let them finish yeah. and then you start again. Obviously, doing a Zoom thing, you can't hear anything. You don't know, so you have to rely on your own experience to, you know, to do something. Allow people time to, yeah. to do it, but you are performing in silence. It's, it's very, very bizarre, and it takes a while to get used to it. Um, but it was, it's, it was the best of a, a terrible situation. You know, you're given the opportunity to still do it and to, to be able to still perform. To, to any degree, or to work on new material. Obviously, like, if you're a magician, I like to get people up on stage to help me with things. That can't happen of on Zoom, so it gives me the opportunity to work on new material and work on new stuff. So it was, um, you know, every cloud has a, has a silver light. I know it was a, a terrible situation, but we were so able so you, to so in,
0: in a way, you're saying, as a magician, it was slightly better than being a comedian.
5: Uh, I'm not saying, not saying that, I'm just saying it was... It, I can only talk as a magician, um, in yeah. a sense. It gave me the opportunity to work on new material that I could do right. for people where they could just... I mean, it's half of what I do, I stand and talk and just perform anyway, so that, that stuff's fine, but in terms of interacting with an audience, rather than having someone on stage and all the, the opportunities that arise with that, you're now interacting just through a screen, so they can't, physic- they can't choose a card. No. They can't phys- they c- I can't borrow a ring or a coin or whatever, but I can come up with other ways of maybe doing tricks that everybody performs interactively while they're watching, they're playing along with at home. So, yeah, I, I think it, was, it would have been... It, it's difficult for everyone, and I can only say, that like, as myself, I...
0: Yeah, and the other problem, that, the other problem that performers have, you know, whether, we, whether you want to make people laugh or make people think, you want to entertain people, if so many things that were considered to be acceptable 30 years ago are now by often a very loud minority, considered to be unacceptable, cancelled. Has that hit the world of being a magician?
5: Um, I don't know. I'd say personally, no, I don't think it has. I think, um, obviously, you can... Whenever you're touching on any sort of subject... You know, it is, it is always possible. I Are mean, you soaring
0: people in half aloud anymore?
5: Or... It, it is, yeah. <laughs> as long as you put them back together again. You know, if you, if you don't, you can have a lawsuit on your hands, which we don't want, especially this day and age. But I think, I think with magic, it's, we're sort of given an easier time than comedians because with, with comedians, and it's, it's my favourite art to watch perform, you have somebody, a lady or gentleman or anybody, just standing there with their words. They just have their words. Yeah. So I, I want to make people laugh while I do my tricks. It's sort of the glue that holds it all together. If you don't laugh, not a problem. You might still like the tricks. If you don't like the tricks, you might like the joke. So I've sort of got a safety blanket behind it. It's awesome. With the visual art that magic is, when you're watching on Zoom or watching on television, it's a, it's a visual thing. Sometimes you don't need language. You can perform abroad and do the same act. Even talking in English, people can still see it. They can still understand what's happening. So I think as magicians, we're a bit luckier in that sense. So we have the visual side of it sometimes. Who's so the best you've seen? Magician? Yeah. Um, technically, um, I'd say... Probably David Copperfield in America. The reason being is that you know there's a saying, "Jack of all trades, king of none." Um, he's king of everything, so he does. He can perform close up, he can perform the big illusions, he can do the funny stuff, he can do. And he's you know there's a reason why he's a billionaire, and
0: basically no yeah. other magician ever has been. Yeah, yeah. And no, then no, he's absolutely phenomenal. And what about your charity work? Just tell, me, just tell us briefly. Yes, yeah, so i I know I'm, it's close to your heart. I'm
5: immensely proud. Yeah. So I'm a patron of a number of charities. Um, they're all do all for children, so some, by and large, most of them are usually performing for children who are poorly um, in hospitals, and that's been amazing. That was obviously sadly taken away, but again, that led us to another avenue of doing things online and virtually and hosting yeah. magic classes for them and doing shows for them as well, which is brilliant. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, if you're ever in a fortunate position where you can, give a little back,
0: I just think. No, well, good it's, for you. Well, it's really thought. interesting. I, mean, I have to say, I'm fascinated by this whole, the whole question of these talent shows, changing yeah. people's lives. It did with you. Now, Jamie Raven... There's no such thing as a free pint here at of GB News, so show us a trick. I'd love to. I know, talking of talent shows, lovely little segue there. I thought
5: I'd show you one of the, the tricks I did on my audition for Britain's Got Talent. A friend of mine, a very talented artist, drew these for me. These are Bank of Britain's Got Talent banknotes. Have a look. Yep. You will recognise the characters. Yeah, of the I can judges. see. Carroll, the man. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bank yeah. of Britain's Got Talent 50 pound notes. Obviously, finish the show now. We need to change this back into English yes. sterling. So I'm going to use you to help me now, I need two things from you, if you don't mind. If I could borrow your index finger, if you don't yep. mind, if that would be okay, yeah, 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 and yeah, you can yeah. just point your finger for me, index and I need a magic word. It can be anything in the world except abracadabra. Everyone cops out with abracadabra. What would you like? Right, well, hey presto. OK, on three, don't move. One, two. Hey presto. That is £250. Oh, pounds.
0: I tell you what. I tell you what. In English sterling, uh, which we're going to use um, to go to um, um, the pub now. Could I employ you? I mean, <laughs> it would be my pleasure. Be my pleasure no wonder we got Brilliant. <laughs> I haven't got a clue how you did that. And if I was to really think about how you did that, I'd probably get quite frustrated, which is probably why Sir Richard Branson once said, throw him off the blooming plane. Yeah. You yeah. must have driven him mad. I didn't, didn't say blooming, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, thank no. You. I was <laughs> just but we are before the watershed. It it was, yeah. yeah. Jamie Raven, fascinating. Uh, I think magic, illusions, all of these things, one thing for certain, you guys in that business, you're gonna you're gonna be around forever, as long as there are human beings. And thank you for joining us here on Talking Pints. Thank you for having me. That was Jamie Raven. Well, there you are. I like the look of that 250 quid, I must say. Now, a couple of minutes left, and it's time for Barrage to Farage, where you send in your questions that I don't see before. A viewer asks, is an Austrian-style lockdown for the unvaccinated coming to the UK? And if so, what do we do to resist it democratically? I think what's happening Austra- in Austria is appalling. You know, personally, I have had the vaccine, but I understand there's a percentage of people that do not want to have it. And I don't want to see them being demoted to being second-class citizens. It's happened in Austria. They've been locked down. It's extraordinary. Is it going to happen here? Well, think about it. 50,000 people had to leave their jobs at care homes last week. Many more may have to leave the National Health Service before the 1st of April. I don't think we're going to get to anything quite as extreme as what's happened in Austria, but who knows? Because the pandemic has been an excuse for government to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we've had lockdowns, for medical grounds, who knows? There could even be environmental lockdowns in years to come. Delhi had one this week. How do you resist this democratically? Very difficult when all the political parties basically agree. Alan asks, "Are you musical in any way? Do you play an instrument?" No, the fool some would say. I'm not. I have to say, not particularly musical. Uh, Growing up, I was always a big outdoors guy. I wanted to play sport. I wanted to play cricket. I wanted to play golf. I wanted to go fishing. My life was outdoors. I never really bothered with music, which probably is a bit of a shame. William asks me, what do you think about the HS2 Eastern Lake being cancelled? The only part of HS2 that made any blooming sense was for a line that went from the West Midlands up through South Yorkshire, and that was where... Actually, the, the road systems and everything are dreadful. So the HS3 bit, I thought, made sense. The rest of HS2, I think, is the most gigantic white elephant. It's going to cost 150 billion quid just to get to Manchester a few minutes more quickly. And the argument that it means businesses will relocate to Manchester, well, in the case of a TGV in France, you know, Marseille went from being six hours away to three hours away. And do you know what that made people do? made more firms relocate to Paris. So I'm not convinced by it at all. Stephen asks me, do you think war is imminent? Well, look, Putin has got 100,000 troops massed on the Ukrainian border. uh, And we have, of course, President Xi of China in the most enormously powerful position, posing constant threats to Taiwan. There was a meeting between him and Joe Biden yesterday. Do I think China will invade Taiwan? Imminently, no. Do I think Putin will want to provoke the West, even though it has incredibly weak leadership coming now from America, post-Afghanistan? No. Do I think war's going to happen imminently? No, I don't. But, of course, there are always risks, but not immediately.